Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Welcome to the latest edition of the OIS podcast series. My name is David Ledesma, and I'm joined today by James Henderson, who's Distinguished Research Fellow at the OIS. Now, Jim has just returned from the United Arab Emirates, where he was attending the COP28 conference. And before he left, he set out in an energy comment 10 key issues for COP28 and the challenges that the COP28 conference would face. Now, this comment is published by the Institute uh, and is available on our website. Now, Jim is back with us again, and in this extended podcast, he's going to reflect on COP28. Now, just to timestamp this recording, we're recording it on the morning of Tuesday, the 18th of December, 2023. Jim, welcome back to the OIS podcast series. Thanks, David. Pleasure to be here. Now, Jim, last year, after COP27, I interviewed you for a podcast that is, of course, available on the OIS website on your views of that conference. And you said before the conference started that you had mixed expectations, but but a hope that there will be some more progress, both in terms of ambition, implementation of the ambition, and discussions on finance. So as you headed off to COP28 this year, you know, what were the main expectations this time? Well, David, as we sort of approached this COP, the one big question out there was around the global stock take, which is a once in five years event where the UN kind of reviews how countries are doing against their nationally determined contributions, which is which are the, the kind of ambitions they set out once every five years. So we were looking for a big discussion about those results. Financing was always going to be a big topic again. It always is. But the loss and damage fund had been agreed and set up at COP27. And operationalizing that was going to be a big topic for COP28, as was all talk of finance around mitigation adaptation. The role of hydrocarbons was going to be a big topic as we went into COP. It was being held in a, an oil and gas producing country. Uh, it was being run by the gentleman who runs uh, Adnoc, a state oil company. So that was always going to be a conversation. The you know, what, what was the role of hydrocarbons going forward? Carbon markets, again, methane. These were all topics that were going to be around. And then finally, I guess the geopolitics question was going to be there. Russia obviously with the war in Ukraine, the relationship between China and the US. So the whole geopolitical debate was also going to be high on the agenda. So those were the kind of things we were going in. And in terms of expectations, I mean, I think the real question was whether there was going to be a huge row over the presence of oil and gas producers. And uh, so we were all waiting eagerly to see what was going to happen there. So, okay, with, with that kind of introduction, how did the conference actually play out? And, you know, who was there? And perhaps more importantly, who was not? Obviously, all the delegations were there and senior people flew in and flew out. Who was not there? I mean, President Xi was not there. President Biden was not there. Uh, President Putin, perhaps not surprising, was, was not there at the conference. Like he did fly in to the Middle East during the conference. But there were still senior people there from the EU, from the UK, you know, leading delegations. Uh, Modi was there from India. So, I mean, there were still senior people around and there were still some important announcements made. The question around the presence of, of major hydrocarbon producers, there were a lot of CEOs. So Darren Woods was there from ExxonMobil. There were senior representatives from kind of BP, Chevron, Shell, others there. So there was a lot of uh, oil and gas presence. And obviously, the, there were 70,000 plus delegates there representing a wide range of, of opinions in terms of both political opinions from the small island states that obviously feel a huge threat of climate change to big oil producing countries and big fossil fuel producing coal producing countries as well. So there was a, a wide range of opinions, as always at a COP. 
you know, a wide range of, of companies and energies represented from you know, obviously renewables through nuclear, through oil and gas. So, you know, a, a huge range of people there. The formal negotiations obviously continuing alongside the rest of the COP, which is dominated by the blue zone, the official pavilions, the green zone, which is open to the public, and then lots and lots of external venues, lots of hotels being used for external seminars as well. So in your conference pre-note, you listed 10 items that you know we believe would be the main topics of conversation at the conference. So why don't we discuss a few of these now? You know, the first you've already mentioned was the global stock take, which you know, is a primary foundation for policy debate at COP28. So what actually happened there then, Jim? We had essentially a pre-announcement that, uh, of, the, of the results. There was a sort of summary document which came out, which told us that what everyone knew, which is that the world is off target to keep global warming down to one and a half degrees above industrial revolution levels. And, you know, this, which is one of the key goals of the Paris Agreement. So we were told that if the NDCs were implemented, then we'd be heading to a world of 2.4 to 2.6 degrees above if kind of policies that are actually being you know, put in place, not, not, not just promised in NDCs, but in place, we're heading towards closer to three degrees. So you know, we had that as the backdrop. And Mr. Guterres, the UN Secretary General, made various statements about you know, banging heads together. You know, we need to get back on track. But there were some initial announcements and initial targets set as a result of this global stock take, which were relatively encouraging. The ambition to triple renewable energy was announced early. The ambition to double efficiency by 2030 uh, was announced early. And then the big question out there from, you know, in terms of mitigation was what was going to be said about fossil fuels? So we had these kind of renewable energy and efficiency targets out there. And then the, the rest of the COP really was about, OK, so what are we going to say about are we going to phase down? Are we going to phase out fossil fuels? Who's going to agree to what? And then the other thing that the global stock take does is it also talks about some of the other big issues so it sets the framework, really, so the, around financing, around uh, other technologies that could be useful in hard-to-abate sectors, and also about topics like adaptation. You know, what are we going to do about the, the, the climate change that's already happening? And then other, other issues around carbon markets and methane. So it kind of set a framework for the whole COP. And so the, the global stock take conversation happened early on day one and then really almost put to one side, and we came back to it in the second week of the COP, when it came down to trying to nail down a final communique that was going to be announced as the, the kind of result of the COP. Okay, and another key issue, of course, is also the loss and damage fund. So, you know, any updates on that? Well, that was the big news, really, on day one. I mean, if you like, the global stock take was overshadowed, really, uh, early in the COP by a couple of major themes of which loss and damage was one. So, as I mentioned, the loss and damage fund had been set up at COP27, but as one of the delegates from a developing country said at the end of COP27, it's a bit like having a bank account with no money in it. So it wasn't really particularly useful. No one really knew how it was going to work, and no one had made any commitment other than I think I think Scotland had put a few million pounds in as a sort of kickoff. But anyway, we had a big announcement from Sultan al-Jaber, who was the COP president and from the UAE, that the loss and damage fund had been agreed that it had been set up, it was being hosted by the World Bank, the UAE put $100 million in, as did various other countries, particularly from the EU. In total, by the end of the COP, there was just shy of $800 million in the fund. And 
the fact that it was there and was working was seen as a big win on day one because there had been a lot of negotiations leading up to the COP which hadn't really reached compromises around a number of big issues. And to be honest, although it's there now with money in it, there are still questions to be asked about, you know, firstly, one, whether the money that's gone in it is really additional money, as in, has it just been transferred from other development funds or is it really new money? And then secondly, and perhaps most importantly, who's allowed to get the money out and how? And I think, is it going to be grants? Is it going to be loans? Is it, you know, what, what's the form of the, and, and how is it going to be allocated? And I think the final point is, you know, the amount of money that's in there is nice, but it pales into insignificance compared to the amounts of money that would be needed. For example, you know, the, the floods in Pakistan were costing many tens of billions of dollars to fix. So it's still fairly small beer at the moment. But nevertheless, it was seen as a positive that it's there, it's got money in it, and it's being hosted by the World Bank. And the World Bank have said that it'd be ready to work by the end of the first quarter. So there is an anticipation that that is a, a win which will you know, become operational in 2024. Okay, good news, Jim. But let's now go back to the role of hydrocarbons, which you mentioned earlier on, which of course is a key point uh, at COP. And as you said, there was a lot of debate about it being held in an oil-producing country with Sultan Ala Jabba as the president. But in an early statement at the beginning of the conference, he said, staying within 1.5 degrees centigrade is my North Star and a phase out of fossil fuels is inevitable and necessary. Now, this kind of, to my mind, seemed to set the scene of the conference. So with such a key statement emanating from COP right at the beginning, uh, you know, shouldn't transitioning away from fossil fuels have been an easy conclusion to achieve? Well, it's interesting you say that, David. I mean, yes, he did make those statements. And indeed, his statement at the end talked about the phase out of fossil fuels. Not, it's not an official you know, UN document, but he did when concluding the conference, he talked about it as well. But during the conference, he made you know, a number of different statements around, and there was a particularly controversial one around whether the science really argued for the complete phase out of fossil fuels. And he also made comments about you know, effectively saying you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can't just move from one system to another overnight and flick a switch. There were other oil producing countries. I mean, Saudi Arabia was kind of highlighted as, as, the, as the leader, but really it was OPEC that was basically calling it on its members to reject any notion of a complete phase out of fossil fuels. And so this debate about what we were really talking about in terms of the future of fossil fuels you know, was was live throughout the conference to even to the very last minute. And it almost, you know, broke down the conference at the end as we were looking for a, a final communique. I mean, the argument was really about between two different camps. On the one side, you've got the environmental NGOs saying, you know, the oil and gas community are the problem here. We're trying to get rid of hydrocarbons. They shouldn't be part of the discussion because they're always going to lobby for the continuation of fossil fuels in some form or other. And that's not what we need. So they should not be part of this debate. On the other hand, you've got the what I would call, if you like, or they would call themselves the realists, which are saying, look, fossil fuels are 80% of you know, with the energy we use right now. They're going to be a big part in any scenario you've seen. We're still using fossil fuels by 2050. It's really a case of how to mitigate them and how to manage that, that transition. And therefore, fossil fuel companies need to be part of the discussion. And, and they were part of the discussion. And they did make various commitments. In particular, the oil and gas decarbonisation charter was signed. And importantly, it committed 50 companies, including 30 NOCs, to the very important goal of 
attempting to cut methane emissions to pretty much zero by 2030, to end routine flaring, and to drastically cut scope one and two, so that's the own, their own value chain emissions, you know, to net zero by 2050. So not everyone signed up to that, for sure, but it was enough companies that it made a big splash in the, uh, early in the week and led on to other positive statements, particularly around methane. So I'd say that, and, you know, there were commitments made and there were voices heard which said, look, you know, particularly in the global south, you can't expect us not to, to use our hydrocarbons. So Narendra Modi from India, I've mentioned, he said, you know, coal is and will remain an important part of India's energy mix. And representatives for Africa were very clear that, you know, the global north has used hydrocarbons to develop its economies. We have hydrocarbons. We want energy access. We want economic development. You cannot tell us not to use our energy resources for the betterment of our people. So that debate was kind of going on throughout the COP. So it was very live, very real, and really touched on the different perspectives of the energy transition from different parts of the world. And I think, you know, to be fair to the oil and gas producers and exporting countries in OPEC, they were making the point, look, you can't ask us to commit economic suicide. That was actually a word that was used by just agreeing to the phase out of, of the, 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 the source of our economic wealth. And so we need to talk about this in a mature fashion, which takes into account all the interests in the room. And that was the debate that, as I say, played out over the two weeks. And a fascinating debate it is. And in fact, you know, what you just said has been reported quite positively uh, in this weekend's press in, in the UK. Why don't we talk about renewables for a few minutes? Because you, you've already mentioned the tripling of the world's renewable energy generation capacity to kind of reach, what, 11,000 gigawatts by 2030 as, as a target. That seems kind of very ambitious to me. You know, is that actually achievable? Well, I think, no, I think the sense was that, yes, it is ambitious. It, it implies a kind of doubling of the growth rate between now and 2030 of, of renewables. But, you know, a number of countries uh, are really focused on this. I mean, interestingly, coming back to India, you know, renewables has been growing remarkably fast in, in India, as Prime Minister Modi pointed out. And I think they feel they're on target for 2030. Again, the growth in China has been dramatic. So even these countries that are using a lot of coal really are focused on trying to expand renewable use as well. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a stretch target, but I think it was one that was felt to be within the bounds of reasonable goal setting. And I think, again, the efficiency target was, again, a, a stretch target. It's, a, it's sort of a, a doubling, if you like, of the ambition, but as something to have out there as a target for policymakers and industry to focus on. I think it was seen as, I mean, realistic is an interesting word. I mean, achievable, I think, but with significant effort, I think is probably the way of putting it. And one of those efforts is going to be availability of finance, isn't it? So, you know, what about kind of this whole issue of financing and mitigation and adaption uh, in the developing world? Let's be clear, Jim, it's been a kind of topic at you know, almost all COPs to date. And it certainly was an issue identified in your kind of pre-COP energy comment. So what happened on that? Well, interesting. developing countries are now kind of encapsulating the whole finance question and other issues like technology transfer and capacity building into a, a phrase they're calling means of implementation. And I think that you know, clearly finance is is the most critical one. And there was a lot of focus on the key UN principle of common differentiated responsibility, namely the global north, if I can use that general term, the develop, developed countries have caused 
the problem. They now need to help the global south, the developing countries, fix the problem. And providing finance is one of the, the key issues. So I say loss and damage was a tick, although more money required. The big overarching question over the last few COPs has been this $100 billion pledge. Back in 2009, the developed world pledged to be providing $100 billion a year to the developing world for mitigation mainly by uh, 2020. They failed to do that. And the kind of pandemic was, was obviously a key reason for that. But they failed in 2021. 2022, the OECD had produced a report saying that it had been achieved or was likely to have been achieved, although there was a debate around what evidence they'd really used in a number of developing countries weren't at all sure it had been achieved. But anyway, the $100 billion is close to being achieved or has been achieved. But the really important question now is what happens next? Because $100 billion was for 2020. But by the time we get to 2025, 2030, we're not talking about $100 billion. We're talking about you know, nigh on a trillion dollars being needed by the end of the decade. So clearly that, what it's called the new collective quantified goal of finance for the developing world needs to be upgraded. That question of how much, and I would suggest it's at least 500 billion, you know, from 2025, rising to a trillion, was under discussion, but there wasn't really any agreement around it. I mean, there's lots and lots of questions. It's a question very much rolled over for the next COP. There were some, you know, the Green Climate Fund, did get new pledges. Uh, it was replenished to the tune of about $12.8 billion. There were some individual pledges. The UAE was you know, basically making pledges all over the place, but it announced it had started the Altera Fund with $30 billion to focus on renewables. There were some questions about how much of that goes to the Global South, but it supposedly that was going to unlock a, you know, a quarter of a trillion dollars of, of private capital. So there were individual pledges coming in, but I would say that there wasn't really enough focused conversation on specific numbers. And I think the finance question was kind of left out there, really rolled over to COP29, COP20, COP30. And, and this question of what the $100 billion needs to be from 2025 onwards is still hanging there. And I think the other big question was around how much private finance could be unlocked, both by the, the, the public contributions being increased, but also by the role of the multilateral lending banks, the, the World Bank in particular, the IMF, the export credit agencies, providing what is called blended finance. So essentially going in, providing the initial financing, reducing the risks for private capital, you know, taking some of the specific risks away, providing some, if you like, guarantees so that private capital can then come in and hopefully reduce the cost of capital to the developing world and make finance flow. So that question about the role of the big multilateral lending agencies was also up front because they are really going to be a key to unlocking the, the huge amount of private finance, which everyone claims is out there waiting for the right projects with the right returns or with, the, with lower risk levels than are currently being seen. Finance was at the heart of almost every single discussion I wouldn't say that there was a resolution really reached around it. It was just another topic which is kind of rolling over and needs to be continually monitored going forward. But it, but it sounds like maybe a bit more clarity. Uh, at least it's, it's, it's on the table, isn't it? It's on the table, but the amounts of money involved are so enormous that it was almost overwhelming in its kind of, you know, how are we really going to unlock this? I think that the, the level of the grants was was impressive. The level of contributions to some of the funds was impressive. The level of money being put forward by various new funds was impressive. But 
you know, as soon as you start talking trillions, then all the talk of billions kind of fades into insignificance. I think really the the question of the role of the World Bank is absolutely critical here. And I think this this question of providing the kind of guarantees or, in, you know, sort of quasi-insurance, removing some of the key risks so that private money can start to flow at a lower cost of capital because risks have been reduced is absolutely critical. And I think that's really the question into 2024 is how can the World Bank and its shareholders, which is, of course, all the countries in the developed world, make more money available via the World Bank to reduce risk for private capital? That's a, that's really the if that was one takeaway, it was that. And that's a big topic for next year. Well, look, Jim, why don't we move on and talk about the role of new technologies in reducing emissions and, you know, and, or, and how that was kind of discussed at COP? Because I was particularly interested in a press report this weekend that uh, Fatih Birol, the executive director of the International Energy Agency, had shot down any reliance on carbon capture and storage, saying that CCS was well, an illusion and a fantasy. So how, how was technology discussed at COP and was CCS being seen by some players as the kind of solution to all our problems? Well, certainly it was being seen as a solution. I wouldn't say it was the solution to all our problems, but it was certainly being promoted, particularly by the oil and gas industry and by others, to be fair, as a solution and a solution with various kind of options. I think the the most sensible discussions that I was aware of were around CCS for hard to abate sectors. So if you're talking about steel, cement, fertilizers, glass, where it's very difficult to move away from fossil fuels because of the high temperatures needed and and, uh, that can be generated particularly by methane, natural gas, then, you know, those sectors, particularly if we're going to decarbonize them quickly, do need carbon capture and storage. And so I think there were some interesting conversations there. And but to Fatih Birol's point, I think the CCS debate was taken further than that and was portrayed by some as a panacea that could essentially start to provide a kind of net zero oil, which I think is a very dubious term, but is about injecting CO2 back into oil reservoirs to, to compensate or to basically to increase the pressure in the reservoir. But, but also, if you put enough CO2 in, then the CO2 that's created when you burn the oil theoretically is netted out. Now, I think that's very a, a, a difficult argument to sustain, particularly from where we are. And I think Fatih Birol is, is attacking that. I think the other thing he's attacking is the fact that at the moment, we have around 40 million tons of carbon storage capacity in the world. We need to achieve eight gigatons by 2050 and 1.5 gigatons by 2030, if we're going to be remotely on target. The, the Global CCS Institute produced a very interesting graph which showed that if you put all the projects that are existing, plans under construction, you can, you can see projects that are kind of live now totaling between 350 and 400 million tons. So we need to get to 8,000 million tons by 2050, and, and we need to get to 1,500 million tons. So we're a long way away from really getting the capacity in place, never mind the economics working. And so I think what Fatih Birol is pointing out is that we cannot rely on CCS as this silver bullet, which is going to solve our problem. It is a solution that is there, and I think is should be focused on the hard to abate sectors. It is not 
a solution that, that allows us to continue producing oil and gas ad infinitum because we've got this way of, of capturing the carbon. I mean, it, that's, the capacities involved are just not uh, sufficient remotely to do that. So it has to be in tandem with other decarbonisation measures and reducing consumption of oil and gas. Well, the other way, of course, of reducing uh, use of kind of fossil fuels is greater energy efficiency. And this was, again, a COP28 commitment. And to my mind, it just seems like a no-brainer. But, you know, is this, is this actually achievable globally, Jim? Well, I think it is. And I think, you know, an efficiency was defined as lower amounts of, of energy used per dollar of GDP. And we have been seeing that, certainly in the developed world. I mean, we have become more efficient in our use of energy. And of course, over time, one would expect in developing countries as they grow, that efficiency will also improve. I mean, there's an initial surge of energy use, of course. But but over time, yes, I mean, I think the the focus on improving energy efficiency across all sectors. So, you know, industry, transport, residential. I mean, particularly in industry and transport, we have seen increasing efficiency in terms of, you know, the use of gasoline in more efficient engines for, for cars and particularly for airplanes, of course. We've seen more inf- efficient industrial processes. Residential is a little bit more difficult. It kind of depends where you live. It depends what your housing stock looks like. It depends, you know, actually whether you have energy access yet or not. So I think it was certainly seen as a goal that governments and policymakers should focus on and haven't probably haven't focused enough on to date because it does involve you know specific action and subsidy and actually in some cases it does involve upfront cost to achieve longer term goals and I think that's where the issue has been it's been convincing people and providing the financial support to allow people to make the initial investments that then reap the benefits over time so I think the focus really going forward has to be on incentivizing those kind of investments, which, as you say, do make economic sense over the medium to long term, but you still have to have the monies available. And given the economic circumstances we've had and the monies that have been spent on recovery from the COVID pandemic, governments haven't had the wherewithal and the focus to kind of get it done in the past two or three years. But as you say, it does look like an obvious win going forward. And it is now in the target, if you like, for 2030, we need to double the improvement from kind of 2% improvement per year. So there has been improvement to 4.1% if we're going to meet the target. That's the goal. So, you know, governments need to focus on creating the incentives to get both industry and other consumers to, to get that done. Now, Jim, one of the areas, of course, that's of uh, focus and interest in the Institute is kind of measurement of emissions. So, you know, was there much discussion over carbon markets and their role in the measurement and mitigation of emissions? Well, I'd say carbon market, the carbon market discussion was probably the most disappointing discussion at the COP. There were discussions going on. You know, we were looking to really finalise the operationalization of Article 6 particularly Article 6.2 and 6.4, it didn't really happen, if the truth be told. We were looking for the COP to really provide the foundations for greater transparency on, as you've said, both the definition, the measurement and the verification. The negotiations kind of went on. A kind of final document was not really presented to the COP presidency in any meaningful form. The complexities remain And effectively, it was deferred to COP29. So it's another year of negotiations to come. 
So I'd say if you're uh, really into the detail, there were some agreements made which could allow countries to trade carbon offsets more easily. But I think in terms of the voluntary carbon market and the trading between companies, I don't think there was the definition and clarity provided that many people were hoping for. And so I don't think it'll, it, it, you know, it doesn't destroy that market by any stretch of the imagination. But, but the voluntary carbon market had gone through a difficult 12 months where there had been a number of scandals about you know, how the offsets are really being uh, developed, whether they're really credible or not. It was hoped that this COP would kind of get us back on track for that with that credibility. And I would say it didn't really do that. And therefore, we have another year of debate and discussion ahead of COP29, where again, we'll go into it thinking, can we finalise Article 6 once and for all and get that voluntary carbon market going? So Jim, as we kind of get to the end of this podcast, I'd like to kind of get to your opinion on a couple of points, if I may. You know, in fact, the same points that I asked you uh, in the podcast at the end of the COP27 discussions last year. So firstly, you know, what were your overall impressions of the conference then? So my overall impressions were that it was much better organised than people were expecting, that the the focus on fossil fuels and the feeling that the, the, the oil lobby group would, would win out completely because it was being held in the EUAE was, was not correct. I think the presidency made a big effort, as you've said, to make statements about you know, how fossil fuels ultimately need to be phased out. And you know, there were some, certainly some positive things that came out from the interaction between the fossil fuel community and the COP process. So I think it was certainly an inclusive COP in terms of the, the, the conversations going on around. And I would say they were realistic conversations. I think the final communique, uh, which is always incredibly difficult to pull together because you need to get unanimity amongst 190 plus countries, was always going to be a compromise. And there was a big, big row about the final communique because initially when it was produced, it basically provided a series of options. It started, you know, it calls upon the, the parties, that's all the countries, to take actions that could include, and that, that phrase, that could include, was hugely controversial because it basically said, do what you feel you, you want to do. Do you want, if you want to triple the renewable electricity, then fine. If you want to improve efficiency, fine. If you fancy phasing down unabated coal, go for that if you want to, but don't feel you have to. And so there was massive pushback against that. And, and you know, we were on the point of, of seeing people walk out. So there was a huge, we, we overran, there was big discussions. We came back with a final communique that was, was stronger in the language and mentioned the transitioning away from fossil fuels. So fossil fuels, not all the other cops have mentioned coal. This one mentioned fossil fuels. So if you'd like, implicitly, the first mention of oil and gas and transitioning away from that in a final communique. So that's a big moment. I mean, even though you can argue about you know, how seriously we should take that, the fact that it's there, it's out, it's sent a message that we do need to talk about transitioning in a way. Now, as soon as you dig, dig down into the detail, you, you, you kind of hit issues if you want to create them. So the phrase taking into account different national circumstances allows countries to interpret this as they see fit. If you're a developing country, then you say, well, my national circumstances and also the phrase just, orderly and equitable. Well, in an equitable sense, if I'm a developing country, then I should be allowed to produce my hydrocarbons and it should be you, the developed countries, that actually transition away first. So 
There are nuances around the final communique, but nevertheless, it did say, talk about transitioning away from fossil fuels. So that was positive, but we just need to be careful that we don't start use banding around phrases like historic and, you know, because it's only historic if people start to take action. I think the other thing to highlight is there were other positive news. I mean, nuclear is back. And so, you know, people are promising, 22 countries promising to triple nuclear capacity by 2050. Removal technologies like CCUS and low carbon hydrogen are in the communicator. Now, you can debate whether they're a good or bad thing. You can debate about how much we should be using them or not. But I think there's a realism about the final communicator, which is that all technologies have to be thought about because, you know, you can't, we're not going to do this with only one technology. The final point I'd make about the positives is we haven't really talked about methane emissions other than peripherally. Methane emissions were a major focus of this COP. They're in the final communique. They are absolutely critical for the next decade. If we can get methane emissions down to close to zero by 2030, we will go a long way towards getting back on track. I mean, methane emissions have accounted for like one third of the global warming we've seen since the Industrial Revolution. So that's massive. And then I think there are other there are other positives that came out of the final communique around fossil fuel subsidies being phased out, around accelerating the emissions from road transport being reduced. So I think there are some good things in the final communique, but we just need to be careful that we don't get too carried away with this kind of historic nature of the fossil fuel mentioned, because there's an awful lot of work to get done. But, you know, Jim, do you think we can say that the 1.5 degree target was actually kept alive, you know? What was the view of, of that target in the final communications? I mean, I think it's it's a strange old phrase that keep 1.5 alive. I think realistically, the world knows that it is not on target for 1.5. We're not, we're we're a long way off. And, and as I said, it was a 2.4 to 2.6 is the way we're going. Having said that, it's important to remember that when this process was kind of going back in 2010. We were heading for a world that was kind of four degrees plus warmer. So we are going in the right direction. We are just not on target yet. So are we keeping 1.5 alive? I think it's a real stretch to say that now. But we are moving forward. And, you know, a number of of, of, uh, promises were made at this COP. A number of commitments were made. My takeaway from this COP particularly is that the oil and gas industry, having been welcomed back into the COP process, if you like, having been kind of somewhat excluded from COP26 uh, in Glasgow, had now got a real, you know, they need they need to perform now. They've made promises about reducing emissions in their scope one and two value chains. They've made commitments about methane emissions. They've made commitments about flaring. They've talked a lot about carbon capture and storage and how it's it's a solution. They now to be need to be seen to be delivering to be credible partners to this transition process because there's a lot of cynicism out there about whether they were really making promises that were for the good of humanity or whether they were making promises to keep oil and gas production alive for their own benefit. And I think they need to demonstrate very, very clearly that this is about a real transition now. And I think that was one of the key takeaways. The other key takeaway for me from the COP was there needs to be a real dialogue, I think, between producers and consumers, because there were there wasn't really a proper conversation about how are we going to manage the decline in fossil fuel consumption. A lot of producers saying, well, hold on, until we see consumers actually reducing consumption, we have to keep producing because otherwise, you know, there's a lack of energy security. On the other side, people saying, well, hold on, we've got to produce, reduce production and consumption because otherwise, how are we going to produce, reduce emissions? There needs to be, that conversation needs to be had in a more realistic fashion between 
the big producers and exporters and the big consumers and importers so that we kind of have a realistic discussion about how we are going to not just mitigate emissions, but actually reduce emissions by reducing fossil fuel consumption. And I think that was, although the phrase transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems is there, how we go about doing that and how we go about making sure that both producers and consumers are included in the conversation so that there's, a, there's an overall agreement and not this kind of fight we saw at this COP, I think is going to be critical going forward. Well, finally, you know, what are the prospects, do you think, for COP29? That, of course, is being held in Azerbaijan in November next year, 2024. You know, and are there any other meetings that we should be looking at before then? In terms of the next COP, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I, I don't know Baku very well, but I hope it's got a huge conference centre because it's going to need it if it's going to, the attendance is going to be anything like in Dubai. I suspect the UN might have, may have to limit attendance because it, it is getting a bit unmanageable now, I have to say, and I, I dread to think what the carbon footprint of the COP actually was in itself. But um, that apart, I think some of the key questions for COP29 are going to be, as we approach COP30 in Brazil, uh, COP29 is going to be have to set the tone for the increased ambition in nationally determined contributions, the NDCs, that will be set at COP30. So the discussion about how countries are increasing their ambitions is going to be critical. Finance is obviously going to be on the agenda. There'll be more discussion about finance in 2024, which we brought together at COP29. And we will need you know, to see that we're moving towards a much greater commitment from the developed world from 2025 onwards, and that discussion will have to be taking place at COP29 in 2024, because we'll be almost at 2025 by then. And then this question about carbon markets will definitely come back. So I think we will need to see the carbon market discussion finalised if voluntary carbon markets are really going to play a big role. And finally, adaptation, This the, the question of money, not just to reduce carbon emissions, but to help countries adapt to climate change. Again, the global goal on adaptation there were some targets set. We did get some final agreements, but the money for that, again, we were looking to double the money to about $40 billion of adaptation funding. Uh, you know, the whole question of adaptation, because we are off target, is going to become more and more important. And I suspect that's going to be a key topic for COP29 as well. In terms of what we expect between now and then, I mean, the big one is always the Bonn intercessional. There's a meeting in, in June of every year to set the agenda for the next COP. It's always a good place to see, you know, what people are thinking is going to be on the agenda and what debates are really live or not. So I think that's the kind of thing we look out for uh, between now and then. But I think overall, the other thing will be the role of the World Bank. Between now and then, we should, there should be a lot more discussions about the role of the World Bank and, and how it's going to facilitate financing to the developing world. Jim, thank you so much uh, for that. That was you know, absolutely fascinating, a great discussion on COP28. And having done, as I said earlier on, the COP27 debrief with you, you know, I can actually see progress uh, between uh, the different COPs. So I hope you've all enjoyed listening to this podcast, and indeed, you know, all our podcasts during 2023. And it just leads me to say that all of us at the OIS would like to wish you a compliment of the season and a happy new year. And it's a goodbye from me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. You can find other podcasts, as well as our written research, on our website at www.oxfordenergy.org. If you would like more details about our energy transition, gas, oil, electricity or China research programmes, then please contact us at information 
at oxfordenergy.org.